this morning is going to be a a little bit out of order from where we are in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 3 in the book of Luke, and um, we haven't really gotten to much of chapter 3, so we've got a lot still yet to cover, but we're going to skip a little bit because of this theme that that I want to address. I started to address it in our last series and decided there was too much there uh, to, to really cover in, in any respectable way, and that is this theme of wilderness. Wilderness is, is a theme that actually occurs throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, and so I didn't want to just kind of rush through it and cram it in, and so we're, we're at the point where John the Baptist is literally coming out of the wilderness to begin his public ministry. At the end of chapter 1, we, we see this, this phrase that, that sets the stage, for John says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So John the Baptist lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. I don't know exactly the length of time, but it sounds like he was out there quite a while. And so the wilderness is a significant part of the story. And actually, we're going to look forward to Jesus here in just a minute. And he spent time in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. So I think there's some significance to the idea of the wilderness that we need to dig into a little bit this morning. But to do that, I think we have to gain an understanding of wilderness throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. So if you'll bear with me, I want to cover some ground going all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 13. Now, we're going to do a quick overview of of what happened with with God's chosen people to kind of set the stage. God's God's chosen people who were the ultimate descendants of Abraham through Joseph's brothers ended up in slavery in Egypt. So Joseph, you know, had his brothers. If you've seen Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know what, what I'm talking about. Hopefully, you're familiar with that story. But his brothers didn't like his attitude. He was a little bit too arrogant for them, and he was the favorite of the father, and so they were just kind of getting annoyed with Joseph. They wanted to kill him, but they didn't quite have the stomach to kill him, so they threw him in a pit, and then a group of people came by, and they sold him into slavery. He ended up down in Egypt with Pharaoh and uh, somehow worked his way through the ranks to become high in, in the ranks of the Egyptian government at the time to have a position of influence. Then his brothers, through the famine, you know, the famines that were taking place, ended up down in Egypt, and everything is kind of restored. Their relationship is fixed. Again, just big, broad overview. Their relationship is fixed. And then, so their people are now in Egypt, and then the people, God's chosen people, start to multiply and grow as God had promised, made the promise to Abraham that that he would have descendants more numerous than the stars. And then now we get to the point in, in Exodus where there are so many of them that, that uh, the Pharaoh feared them and so made them slaves so that he could control them. Then we go through what we all are probably familiar with, the plagues, the ten plagues that, that took place, where God was through each of these plagues combating, taking on one of the gods that the people of Egypt worshipped, and as he took on one of the gods, he destroyed them with these different plagues that, he, that had taken place until the very last plague was the plague of destroying the firstborn of all of the people in Egypt, except for the people of Israel who obeyed the instructions to, to put the, the lamb's blood over their doorpost and the and the spirit would actually pass over their house and save their firstborn. And throughout the night, as, as the firstborn in all of the land died, then there was weeping and mourning, and they kicked the Israelites out. This is, they, they weren't even able to leaven or put the yeast in their bread so it would rise, so they took their bread before it had even had time to rise with them, and they were escorted out of the country in the middle of the night, and God had set his people free. Not long after that, after God had set his people free, they, they spent some time traveling, and God tells them after they'd spent some time traveling to go back almost to where they had been and encamp along the Red Sea. And as they camped along the Red Sea, Pharaoh would see, God actually designed all of this to solve Pharaoh's, the problem of Pharaoh once and for all, to, to see the people and Pharaoh would think that they were confused and that he would be able to go out and conquer them once again. And Pharaoh starts to go out and then God sends his people and tells Moses to go out and raise your rod and the seas will part. Your people will pass through on dry ground. And so all night long the wind blows. There's a wall of water on each side, and as the, as the Israelites pass through, they're walking through on dry ground, and then 
When they get to the other side, God tells Moses, put down your staff, put down your rod and your staff, staff and, and, and then the waters will come in and they will take captive. The waters will destroy all of Pharaoh's army. Literally every army person that they had was out to try to capture the Israelites and God destroyed them all in one act. God not only set his people free, but he destroyed the people who had been oppressing them. Now, God's chosen people are on this journey towards what is supposed to be the promised land. And as they're on this journey, there are several instances where God talks to Moses and starts to set the stage for the kind of people that they're going to be. In Egypt, remember, they had spent all of this time in Egypt living under the rule of all the people who had been worshiping the gods that, that God had destroyed through the different plagues. So, so ingrained in their thinking, after 430 years, they had become very adept at, 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 the influ- at worshiping the idols that were under the influence of the Egyptian people. They had partaken and become comfortable with the religion of the Egyptians. So God was walking them through the desert, through the wilderness, through a process of setting them apart, taking them out of what they had been in so that they could become his people how he desired them to be, to to look and to act and to worship the way he wanted them to look and act and worship. So God has encounters with Moses and gives instructions, and as, as, the, as the story goes on, Moses ends up receiving the instructions for the Ten Commandments and, and comes down and institutes not only the Ten Commandments, but the law and the 630 laws that had to be put in place for the people of Israel to function how God wanted them to function. And then as, as the story goes on, then Moses ends up going back up on the mountain, and this time, instead of coming down after a relatively short period of time, a, a few days, he stays up there 40 days. And during this 40-day period, Aaron, his, his right-hand man, or someone who had been high up, uh, is left in charge. And the people, after this long period of time, decide, Moses is gone. He's never coming back. We need to figure out how we're going to worship God. And so Moses, or, uh, Aaron commands them to bring all of their gold earrings and, and the jewelry that they had, and they melt it all together, and they shape it into a calf, and they start worshiping the calf, and they're going to offer sacrifices to the calf, and as Moses is up on the mountain, God says, you need to go back down, and this is about where we are in this story that I want to pick up. Exodus chapter 13, none of this is going to be on the screen, I just want to read it for you because there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of verses I want to share with you. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not send them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So even though the path that God was sending them on was longer, God was sending them on the longer path on purpose so that they would end up as he wanted them to be, not getting afraid and running back to captivity where they had been. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out. So a month and 15 days after they had left Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They were mad. They were upset. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So the people who had been captive for hundreds of years, who had been slaves to to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, now that they were set free, were longing to go back to being slaves just because they wanted good food to eat. And so God resolved this problem by sending magic bread from heaven. When the, when the people would wake up, there'd be bread on the ground, and he sent quail into the camp so people could eat the quail. Magic bread and magic birds, magic meat, God took care of all of their needs so that they would have the nutrition that they need. And yet we see this habit and pattern of the people of, uh, the, of God's chosen people of complaining and getting fed up and sick of God's provision. Over and over they would say these things. They would grumble against Moses. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water. And so again, they grumbled against Moses. This is later in the story. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So not only has Moses brought them out to starve them to death, but now they're going to die of thirst. And God gives instructions. There's so much to the story that I can't cover this morning. But God gives instructions to, to provide water from this rock. And so they get water from a rock. And it's interesting that at the, towards the end of the time that, that the rock actually becomes a, a part of the story where God and his, or Moses in his own frustration takes matters into his own hands and ends up banning himself from God's promised land. Exodus chapter 24, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, so the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six, day, the cloud, six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. The Israelites, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain, and then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Then we have, after, we have a, whole, a whole bunch of material that takes place in between that and this, but then when, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around, this is chapter 32, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us, before, before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So some of that I've already covered. And then Aaron says, make the, make the calf. And then the Lord said to Moses, verse 7 of chapter 32, go down, this is where I stopped, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf, which by the way was one of the gods that God had destroyed through one of the plagues that he made a point of God being so much powerful than their gods. was The golden calf was one of those gods. And they had just gone right back and made a calf and started worshiping. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, that I will make you into a great nation. And Moses pleads with God to, to save the Israelites. And then Moses goes down. When he comes down from the mountain, sees the people worshiping, he had the two stone tablets that, he, uh, that, he was, that, he had, that God had etched the commandments into and stone for them to follow. And he smashes them on the ground. He goes through the camp, finds uh, the Levites and, and, and summons the Levites to go through the camp and, and kill the people who have been doing this. And they went through the camp and killed 3,000 of their own people for worshiping the calf. This, this is all in the Bible. It's such a very interesting, if you want to read a very interesting story, read Exodus and the story uh, of, of God setting his people, people free. Then we're going to jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2. We're going to skip the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy 1 and 2 give a great kind of summary of all of these events that took place. And if you want that summary, then I would encourage you to read that uh, this afternoon to get a bigger picture. But now they've, they've wandered through the desert for this 40-year this period, 38 and a half years or so, and God's going to send spies, wants them to send spies to check out the promised land and come back and report. So they send 12 spies. They come back, and they're not happy with what they see except for one, uh, one or two, and so they, but they aren't able to convince everyone. And because of that and what Moses did, Moses and the people, this was, this was before the 40 years, sorry, Moses and the people uh, were banned from going in because they didn't believe the promise, so they wandered until all of the old people died, and then the younger people were able to finally enter into God's promised land. So they spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, 40 years on a journey that takes about 11 days by foot. They wandered in the wilderness. This is our first experience, real experience. God actually sent some people out in what we would consider the wilderness in the book of Genesis to protect them, and you see some of that also in, in Deuteronomy and some of the land that he promised to them that would become their home territory. But the, the wilderness is a very, important, a very important part of the story of God's chosen people and a very important part of the story of John the Baptist and Jesus. There's this, this theme of wilderness that I want to unpack just a little bit because there's, there's stuff that happens in the wilderness that, is, that doesn't happen in the usual, ordinary life. 
When you're out in the wilderness, when you're out like John the Baptist, who you don't have a whole lot of provision, right? You have locusts and honey. You have what you can forage for around you. You, you have very limited resources to be able to feed yourself and to survive. So when you're out there in the wilderness, everything becomes you know, 110% of what it is normally. In our normal, usual day-to-day life, we have background noise, we have distractions, we have all of this stuff that dilutes reality. But when you're out in the wilderness and all of those things are gone, when all of the distractions are gone, all of the filters are gone, then you have this, this, this opening in your heart and your mind and your spirit to what is really taking place. A pastor once asserted that the only goal of the exodus from Egypt is that of worshiping God according to God's own specifications. Even the land is promised only so that the people would be free to worship in the way God wanted them to worship. And the law represents an interior or spiritual land without which the physical land would hold no meaning. So God was after the hearts of the Israelites, not just after the numbers of the Israelites. Another theologian points to the development of a relationship between God and his people. God was developing a relationship between himself and his chosen people when the Israelites were out in the wilderness. The key to this development of trust is communication that's facilitated by the solitude and isolation that we experience in the wilderness. So when you're out in the wilderness, we we do away with all the things that distract us and we're isolated and we're able to hear from God. The New Testament offers a lot of support for this latter meeting that we've talked about. The word desert can also refer to an abandoned or thinly populated area, one sought out by Jesus and, dis- and uh, disturbed by the tempter, for example. And the New Testament tends to interpret the Old Testament wilderness experiences as times of grace and closeness to God marked by disobedience. Grace and closeness to God marked by disobedience. And so the wilderness actually seems to have everything to do with our relationship with God. And that worship and the law that he was giving and the commands that he has given to us have just as much to do with relationship and building trust, and he wants us to understand those in our hearts, and he's willing to do what it takes for us to get to a point where we can understand those things at that level. So there is a a brief overview of the wilderness. But now we have John, John the Baptist, living out in the wilderness, living off of locusts and honey. He wore clothes made of camel skin or camel hair. He was possibly living, it's not, it's not stated in Scripture, but living amongst a group of people called the Essenes, who were a, a Jewish mystical sect, somewhat resembling the Pharisees. They lived lives of ritual purity and separation. Um, it's been popular among scholars to claim that John the Baptist, John the Baptist was an Essene, though it's, not, again, not for sure. Uh, There are some similarities between John and the Essenes and then some differences. The similarities are that John was in the desert, the Essenes were in the desert. John and the Essenes used Isaiah 40 to describe themselves as as the voice in the wilderness. The baptism or washing practiced by John and the Essenes required a change of heart. Those were the similarities, but there were some significant differences at the same time. First, the Essenes hid themselves away from society in the wilderness entirely and for all of their lives, where John came out of the wilderness and became a very public figure. John had a much stricter diet than the Essenes did. He was only eating locusts and honey. John preached Jesus as the Messiah, but the Essenes didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They thought that the teacher of righteousness would himself be an Essene. E-S-S-E-N-E, by the way if you're wondering how that's spelled. And there was a strong organization among the Essenes that was missing among John the Baptist's disciples. So was John an Essene? It's possible. It's not necessarily probable. But there are some false doctrines that are in the Essenes, so we should pay attention to that and not necessarily desire to be one of them. And now we get to Jesus and his time in the wilderness. And to set the stage here, I actually want to show the video of Scripture from Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, to understand what Jesus went through and his time 
in the wilderness. Uh, the clip wasn't quite clean on both ends, so there might be a little bit at the beginning and end that's not a part of this, but you'll catch the gist of it. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. So that is John chapter 4, or Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus out being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Longest fast I've ever done has, is seven days. I can't imagine doing a fast for 40 days. But after 40 days of trusting God in the absence of food, God, being God himself, Jesus being God, had all the power to perform a miracle to produce food. But the problem was that meant asserting himself over and against the will of his Father, which Jesus would not do. It's interesting, the correlation between some of the, some of the temptations and some of the, the, the Old Testament uh, wilderness things that were brought up with bread and God providing bread. And now, you can't worship anyone besides God, and the people had failed at that. And the reason some of that, at least, is interesting to me, I find it very interesting, is because Jesus actually did to completion what the Israelites failed to do when God called them out of Egypt. Jesus had walked away from all that he had known and been. He had been called, driven by the Spirit, out into the desert to be tempted. And it appears that the essential temptation is simply these three things, to do it all, have it all, and control it all. But to do it all, have it all, and control it all, you have to oppose the Father who sent you on a specific mission. Jesus suffered temptation and learned a, a better understanding of who he was by experience. He began his public ministry after being strengthened in these ways. And his disciples, which is us, are meant to live just as he did. Many people who study the Bible and, and seek to pull truth out would note the tension between Jesus' temptations and his latter activity, multiplying loaves of bread when he had been tempted to make bread, so he obviously could do that. Taking the plunge into the abyss of death with the trust that the Father would save him, so the devil tempted him to go into death, but he knew that there was a time coming when he would need to take that plunge, but it was according to the Father's plan not his own, and becoming king over everything that you could possibly see, well, Jesus would become the king of heaven. But for our purposes, I want to just look at these tensions, the, the tensions that the real temptation was to grasp for identity, to be suspicious of the Father, and to try to take what he already knew was his in a manner that was outside of the Father's plan. We're grasping for our identity, we're suspicious of the Father, and we're trying to take what is ours, but in a way that is outside the Father's plan. And these are issues that God, I think, wants to address in us as his followers. He wants us to find these things in him, not apart from him, and that is a significant part of what happens in the wilderness. The problem is, for us today, is that we have this normal thing that we're living in, called life, right? We, we go through life on a day-by-day -day basis, and we have all of these distractions. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to keep ourselves healthy. We have to have jobs to provide a living for our family. We have to have fun, right? So we pursue hobbies and do things that are fun. And all of these things, these friendships, these relationships, and all of this stuff that is around us in this life, they become more important to us than seeking time with God and with others. See, it's possible for us in the here and now, especially with devices like the smartphone, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, it's possible for us, for us to surround ourselves with a constant barrage of noise in the form of entertainment and news and utterly, in the end, preventing the kind of quiet reflection that is necessary to hear God as God speaks to us in a very quiet voice. So maybe some of us need a little wilderness in our lives.
part of what's happening as, as Jesus and John are going through the wilderness, and I think what we can significantly draw for ourselves from the, their experience is that, that God is very interested in separating us from the world. We are supposed to live as separate from the world, and it's not just in, in one way, like, like the Essenes. We're not just supposed to go out and live in the wilderness and stay in the wilderness, but we're still supposed to live lives that are separate from the world in these various ways. And I, I, have, I have three areas that I, that I think we're supposed to stay separate that I want to illustrate for us this morning. The first is we're supposed to stay separate from the world and the sinful thinking that exists in the world. Romans chapter 8 Verse 6 and 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. See, the natural state of our thinking, the natural state of our mind is to think on the things of the flesh. It's, it's to be driven by our flesh. The, the natural state of our minds is actually hostile towards God. The natural state where we find ourselves before we come to Christ is to actually be an enemy. We are opposed to God, and God wants to reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ. Before Christ, our minds were blinded by the God of this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, which displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Our minds prior to Christ have been blinded by the God of this age. And in fact, our minds are heavily influenced by the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus is talking about the father of lies. Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. So why is my language not clear to you? Why is what I'm saying not clear to you? That's because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So prior to Christ, the state of our minds is hostile towards God and under the influence of the father of lies. That's a, that's a pretty awful state for our minds to be in. So what needs to happen is, is for God to, to, to set us free from the grasp and the talons of, of, of ourselves and of the enemy of God that is living in us as we are opposed to God and set us free from that and bring us into peace and unity with God himself. What we need is to be set apart and our minds to be renewed, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and, per and perfect will. For us to know what God's will is for our life, we have to be set free from, from the, the hold that this life has on us. We need to be separated from the sinful thinking that we inherit as we're born into this world. So if we're going to represent Christ, we have to be separate from sinful thinking. The second thing is we have to be separate from the world and our fleshly desires. We have to be separate from the world and our fleshly desires. We have to think the right way and our thoughts have to lead us to live in our body in the right way. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21 says, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
As we come into our new life with Christ, not only do we have to be renewed in our thinking, we have to be renewed in our acting. And so we cannot just simply accept the grace of God as an internal act, but the grace of God must manifest itself in an external act in our lives. So we stop doing all of the things that were habit and patterns of our old lives, and we put on the new habits and patterns of the new life. We learn to walk with the Spirit, and as we see that John the Baptist was strong in the Spirit and that Jesus was led out by the Spirit, we too need to learn to be led and to live in accordance with the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do just whatever you want. This is a huge problem in the world that we live right now. This is a huge issue even in the church today, that, that there is this strong urge and this strong push to say, I can do and live however I please as long as it makes me feel good, as long as it makes me feel how I want to feel, and don't you dare suggest that I do something that doesn't make me feel how I want to feel, but that is not in keeping with God's truth. In fact, what we learn here is that what I feel, the, what my flesh is desiring, what my flesh is longing for, actually has nothing to do with God's will, and if we're going to be in God's will, we have to lay those things down and sacrifice them once and for all, leave them behind us, and, and step forward. Some of us may have to sacrifice a lot to come into where God wants us, but we cannot just do whatever the world says is okay. We have to do what God says is okay. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the actions of the flesh that are in keeping with the Spirit. In the Spirit there is no condemnation, Romans chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, there is no condemnation. If you're feeling condemned, then maybe you're not truly living in Christ, or maybe you haven't received fully the gift that Christ has offered to you. But when you're living in Christ and your spirit and your mind and your flesh and your body are, are exercising the ways and the habits and the patterns of the spirit-filled life, there's no condemnation. And even as we stumble along the way, there's no condemnation. There's just taking the step back. It's interesting, no matter how many steps you take away from God, it's always only one step back. So we have to be separate from sinful thinking. We have to be separate from the fleshly desires of this world. We have to be separate from the influence of the world. Again, we don't physically isolate ourselves from the world, though for a period we may need to do that so that we can understand how God wants to have influence on our lives. Some may need a, a period of isolation, a period of, of wilderness, and, and learning to cut through all of the noise, all of the things that filter out God's voice, and be able to learn to hear what it is that God wants to say to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, separate from the influence of the world, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. So the command to, to separate ourselves from the influence from the world actually seems to be more focused on the influence of the world that is within the church. Of course, we should not allow ourselves to be influenced into sexual immorality and all of the things that comes with those who are outside the faith, but at the same time, we cannot isolate ourselves from those who live this way so that they have no opportunity to see Christ living in us and be drawn out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So we have to be in the world, but not of the world, living as salt and light. John chapter 17, part of Jesus' prayer for us right before he's going to go to the cross, pray, he prays that we would be not of the world but sent into it to shine. His prayer is not that, 
to take us out of the world, but that we would go into the world and shine brightly the light of the gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, one we've shared many times, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't hide a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are in the world, but we cannot allow ourselves to be under the influence of the world. We're, we're in the world, we're surrounded by the world, and we should be surrounded by the world, but at the same time, we should also not be under the influence of the world. One of the major mistakes I think that we make in this generation, in this day and age that we live, is that, is that we think we can, we can do it on our own. We can do it without the support of Christian community. We can do it without the fellowship of the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And we think, I am a strong believer. I don't need... All all that church stuff. I'm going to do church in my own way. And so, so you know, just let me, let me do my own God thing, and I will live for Christ in my own manner and in my own way. But as you begin to understand how deep the influence and the effect of the world is on each and every one of us, I think you would truly understand we don't need less community. We need more community with believers. The problem is under normal circumstances, activities such as collecting food, taking care of ourselves, earning a living, pursuing hobbies, under all these normal circumstances of day-to-day life, they seem more urgent than proximity in relationship with God. As I said earlier, it's possible to surround ourselves with a constant barrage of noise in the form of entertainment and news utterly preventing the kind of quiet recollection that's necessary to hear God. And hearing God often occurs in very quiet, isolated experiences. Are we so consumed today with, with the world and the busyness that's going on around us that we're no longer able to seek God? We're no longer able to, to find a few minutes in our busy schedules, in our busy lives, to actually be able to be quiet with God? Are we so busy that, that we can't just set aside a few minutes of our day and actually spend some time not, not consuming so much, but actually saying, okay, God, what do you want to teach me today? The technology is great, but I'm growing more and more into the camp that it poses a grave danger to our souls. I doubt you'll ever hear me say that we should abandon technology altogether. I doubt that I will be that guy. There are some great advantages to devices like smartphones. I have a timer on my phone to tell me not to speak too long because people will get bored. It's a great advantage. We didn't used to have that. You've got the Bible app on your phone. You can go and read the Bible no matter where you are. It's a great advantage. You can communicate with people all around the globe, something that used to take months it can now be done in fractions of a second. There's great advantages to, to these devices. They help facilitate community when you're not in person with someone. But, but what also comes with a lot of the great advantages of technology are a lot of great problems. You could destroy your life with this device. It would take, take maybe even seconds to, to bring about the destruction in your life that would set you on a path, on a, traje- on a trajectory for destruction in just a few short seconds of your life. Parents, I would strongly urge you as you think about whether or not your kids should have these devices to think, think very strongly about how much you're going to let them have them. We've decided we're not going to let our kids have smartphones. My daughter Hannah is sitting here with us this morning, and that hopefully doesn't come as brand new information, but she should know. (laughs) There's a lot of danger in these devices. There's a lot of things that can be facilitated that are insidious, unchristlike through a device. We should not allow ourselves to mindlessly waste away our days scrolling through feeds of information that does not pertain to the here and now. Sometimes, not a problem. 
checking, you know, scrolling through Facebook to see what's going on with friends and family, especially those who live across the country like we have. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But when those things become what consume us in our day-to-day life, it becomes a very destructive thing. There have been a lot of studies now that have come out about the, the addiction that actually takes place with your smartphone. And I have heard one speaker talk about it this way. He, he talks about the, you know, when, we, when we have smartphones, and especially for teenagers and, and younger, uh, younger minds that aren't fully developed, which, by the way, your mind is not fully developed until you're 25 years old. And so as uh, you're uh, reaching the age of 25, your mind is still learning how to process things. And it can be very dangerous if we train our mind to think in accordance with an addiction to things like smartphones. And there was one study that I read, I can't remember how many boys, but they, they looked at some boys who were, who were addicted to smartphones, and they actually reduced, reduced the vocabulary of the teenage boys that were addicted to smartphones, and it took 12 weeks of cognitive therapy to get them back to a point where they were functioning and verbally communicating in a way that was normal to someone else in their age. Um, the, the, our brain, you know, uses dopamine to reward us so that we, that we do things that are supposed to be, you know, supposed to be good things for us. And, and when you're doing good things like talking to someone face-to-face, then, you're, then your brain is wired to, to give you a, a release of dopamine so that you have good community and fellowship and relationships face-to-face. That's how God designed our brain to work. But it can also be abused and manipulated. And actually, one of the things that they've discovered is that with smartphones, as you, you, know, you get depressed and you send out 15 interactions trying to find somebody to uh, send a message, he described it this way. He said, uh, he said you, know, you send out 15 texts to 15 different people saying hi. Hi, 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 hi. And then you sit by your phone and wait for somebody to respond back, and that gives you the trigger of dopamine that you needed, so you're not going through depression anymore. It sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And the equivalent of this is, is, is giving our teenagers, you know, we have laws against drinking under a certain age, we have laws against smoking under a certain age in Oregon, they just upped that to 21. We have laws, but there's no law about smartphones, and the equivalent of this is like giving your key, the kid, to the liquor cabinet and saying, here, I, hel- I hear it helps with depression and anxiety. Use it as you need it. It's a big danger. We need to be extremely careful what we do with things like that. So parents, I would strongly urge you to consider not letting your kids have a smartphone. I know the kids that are in the room probably hate me right now. I'm okay with that. And you can use me as much as you want if it gets the smartphone out of your kids' hands tablets. There is something that happens with a screen in your hand that, that, that is unlike any other things. Video games are, are very close second to it where our mind actually gets wired into it. Saw a story on the news last night. A, ki- a 28-year-old kid, 28 years old, he should be an adult, but he's a kid living in his parents' house, playing a video game. He's probably consumed hours and hours of his life playing this video game, and he loses. And he was upstairs in his room, and he loses it. He just starts yelling and throwing things around, apparently. And his mom comes up to see what's going on. And they get into an argument. The kid pulls out a gun and shoots his mom right there. I think these things get into our minds and start to rewire how things are supposed to work. You can actually do a lot of research and find out how things like video games actually have that effect on us. So I'm not saying avoid it altogether. It comes with some great perks, but be very, very careful. Don't just consume it mindlessly. Because what happens then is these devices actually become the noise that keep us from hearing from God. And when we used to have breaks, when we used to have time where we didn't have something in front of us, you know, clamoring for our attention and yelling out for us, grab me, pick me up, touch me, scroll through me. When we didn't have those things, we actually had moments to reflect. Do you have time in your life to reflect? Do you have quiet, silent time in your life? Or is there too much noise? Are we so consumed with the day-to-day busyness that we're no longer able to seek God? Are we, 
Are we like the seed sown among the thorns like we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Mark chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Still others, like the seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. See, have we surrounded ourselves with, with so much noise that it's actually choking out what God wants to do in our lives? Do we, maybe we need some wilderness time as followers of Jesus Christ today. This is one of the things I love about where we live. It's not hard to go out and find the wilderness out where we live. And any of you, if you need some time in the wilderness, we can come. We have, you can come. We'll send you out. You know, just bring, supply yourself. And if you want to go live off of, off of uh, bugs and creatures and stuff like that, then you can just come park your car and we'll send you out. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of acres you can go experience communion with God. Have we surrounded ourselves with so much noise that the idea from hearing that the idea of hearing from God is completely foreign to us? It's just it sounds absurd almost now that wait a minute, you mean God talks to you? Do we do we need to check you into a clinic somewhere? I mean, you, you God speaks to you. Does that well yes, God speaks to us. He wants to speak to all of us, but the problem is we're so used to what other voices sound like, we've never taken the time to learn what God's voice sounds like in our own lives. You may need wilderness time. You may need one experience of wilderness to be able to just learn what God's voice sounds like so that then you can experience God's voice on a day-by-day basis and quiet as you seek him. So I want to ask us all right now in this moment, what needs to be cut out of our lives? What needs to be cut out of our lives that, that is making it impossible for us to spend time with God so that we can have room to not only read God's word, but let God's word speak to us. Let God speak to us through his truth that he has given us. What do we need to cut out of our lives as we begin this new year so that, so that we can not only hear his voice, but when he speaks to us, we know it's him speaking to us and we're willing to follow as we sang earlier wherever he leads us. What, what do we need to cut out and do we need some wilderness time to be able to learn to hear God's voice? Let's stand together. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for us this morning with your heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to ask, are there any here this morning who would say, yeah, I've, my, my life is too noisy? My life is too noisy right now. I've got too many distractions and I need to clear some of the clutter out of my life so that I can create room for God to speak to me. If you're here, if you would say that, if you'd raise your hand, no one's going to be looking around. There's several hands that have gone up all over the congregation. I myself am one of those. I want to pray for us. Father, I trust that your spirit has spoken to us this morning. I trust that your spirit has enlightened our hearts, that, that, that your spirit of truth has spoken directly to our hearts in a way that only you can take the credit for. Father, I pray for, for those who raise their hands that, that, are, that are saying there, there's something that needs to go. There's too much noise, too much distraction in my life. I don't have the time to hear from God that, that you would in this moment, you would make it very evident, very clear to them what it is that needs to be cut out. That you would just bring up to the, to, to the forefront of their mind what it is that needs to go. Maybe not forever, but for now, it needs to go on the shelf. I pray, Father, that not only would you reveal that to each of us this morning, what you want us to cut out, what you want us to leave, but that you would, by the power of your Spirit, the resurrected power of Jesus Christ that dwells in the hearts of all who believe, give us the power to live without that thing for an extended period of time that the grasp that the talons of that thing has in our mind, in our heart, in our spirit, into our entire being, that you would set us free from that, that you would release us from the captivity of those things and lead us out into a period of time where we can 
learn to hear what your voice sounds like. We can learn to seek you. We can learn to follow you. We can follow you in all of your ways, all of the things that you want us to know, how you want to teach, how you want us to live, how you want us to think, how you want us to act, that we can begin to hear you telling us those things and address those things in our hearts that are, that are not up to your standards and address them not in a form of condemnation but in a form of love. I, I, I love you too much to let you continue to do this to yourself. Don't, don't do this anymore. This is not good for you. Leave this behind once and for all and walk towards me. What you're doing is destroying your life. What you're doing is destroying your family. What you're doing is destroying these relationships that you have with other people around you. And I want to set you free from that destruction. Don't, don't go there anymore. Come to me and let me show you what you need. Father, I pray in this moment that we would experience the freedom that you wanted the Israelites to experience a freedom that says, I am his and he is mine. I am where God wants me. I know God is going to provide for me. I know God is going to care for me. I know God is going to lead me where he wants me to go. I have no cause for concern, no cause for worry, nothing to distract me from the pursuit of God in my day-to-day -day life. All I need to know is that God is leading me where he wants me to go. He will not lead me astray. He will not lead me in a direction that is going to harm me. He will lead me where he wants me to go so that he can grow me, he can shape me, he can develop me, he can help me become who he wants me to be so that I may live a life of salt and light for his glory. Father, I pray that that would not only be true of those of us who raised our hands, but of all of us, that, that we would live our lives separate from the sinful thinking of the world, separate from the sinful living of the world, separate from the influence of the world, that we would be in the world and not of the world, and that we would live our lives sacrificially for the benefit of building up the kingdom of God wherever you send us, wherever you lead us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.